I 155,000% believe in taking in the input of other people in the room. I value the respiratory therapist. I value the nurse. I value the tech. I value everybody that's in there because we've all done ACLS. We've all run codes. And um, I want to continue to have that open input. And it doesn't mean that I don't know my H's and my T's. It just means I value that input. And I'm aware that, you know, there are a lot of things happening simultaneously. So um, more than one voice and more than one brain is better. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. In this episode, we hear co-host Dr. Andrea Austin interviewing emergency doctor and educator Dr. Risa Lewis. It's a great conversation, and it's on an incredibly important topic, which is emergency performance in the face of bias, prejudice, and aggression. Dr. Austin will introduce Dr. Lewis in just a second, but before we start, a reminder, if you're not already, to sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free. It's awesome. And it goes deep into the topics we cover on the podcast, as well as bringing together lessons on emergency performance from a wide variety of sources and angles. So head over to emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, all that said, I'm going to turn the reins over to Dr. Austin, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrea Austin, and I am today's guest host. I'm really excited to have with me today Dr. Risa Lewis. She is a professor of emergency medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. Along with being an emergency physician, she is the director of point-of-care ultrasound. Dr. Lewis brings with her a very interesting background that will really inform our conversation on bias and performance. She majored in sociology and racial ethnic studies at Brown University. She is also a founding member of the Times Up Healthcare Movement, which was founded to combat gender discrimination and harassment that still plague medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for that generous introduction. So as you said, I'm currently in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, I work clinically at Thomas Jefferson in the emergency department. And also I wear uh, a academic hat of being the director of point of care ultrasound. Uh, I also have a secondary appointment in radiology. So the whole purpose of this podcast is to talk about how we can improve our performance, especially under pressure. And I want to jump in with talking about how do you feel that bias can play a part in our performance as emergency physicians and beyond emergency physicians for other members of our audience in general, how does bias affect performance? I think first of all, uh, bias impacting performance is real. And for anybody that really doesn't believe this or think it's all in one's mind, I would strongly push back on that. I don't think it is. There is a lot of data so to support this. And I would say I actually wasn't really familiar with the literature and with the data until I started doing work, doing work with Time's Up Healthcare. And then just study after study after study, uh, we see uh, the impact that healthcare um, and our work environments in healthcare have on us in our performance. Um, and it's, it's not just women, it's women and. Um, 
there's a compounding effect of intersectionality. Uh, there's racial ethnic bias. Uh, there is uh, siloed group, uh, whatever minority group bias. And uh, the data sort of shows that this impacts performance. It impacts performance in uh, terms of salary equity. It impacts in terms of promotion. Uh, it impacts in terms of getting to leadership positions. And it impacts to uh, what the healthcare workforce, and I guess in this case, for the sake of argument, we'll talk about physicians, what the physician workforce and leadership in that workforce looks like and what it looks like over time. So to make this really concrete for our listeners, could you give an example, either something that you've experienced personally or something that you've seen in the workplace to really drive this point home and make it granular for everyone that's listening? Sure. There are terms that are being used more frequently recently, such as aggressions, macroaggressions, microaggressions, microiniquities, and I won't go into definitions of these terms, but suffice it to say that sometimes it's these little, little, little statements, little, little, little behaviors that actually aren't so little, um, and they uh, build up over time to the point that they start having impact on individuals, and then we see that they don't just impact individuals, they actually impact groups, and they impact the whole work environment. So for example, and this is a bit, bit of a, uh, this is a personal story. So this happens not infrequently where I um, wear an ID badge, as most of us do when working. And uh, pre-COVID, I always wore a white coat. And my white coat said Dr. Lewis. And part of that is to help emphasize to patients uh, how I prefer to be called Dr. Lewis. Um, and that comes from the fact that it's not that I need to be called doctor. Um, I did find... Um, over and over over again that uh, patients often didn't know what my role was and uh, where I stood in terms of the composition of the healthcare team. And so, first of all, it designates that I'm a doctor, I'm not uh, another member such as a nutritionist or a transporter or a nurse, not at all not at all denigrating or saying anything negative, but just to clearly distinguish what my role was. Also, uh, when I would introduce myself, I'll say, uh, I'm Dr. Lewis, I'm the supervising doctor. So they don't think that I'm the doctor in training. They don't think that someone else is the leader. They know, okay, this is the person in charge, person in charge of the team, person in charge of my care. Um, the reason I started introducing myself as Dr. Lewis and having that on my white coat um, is what I would find is people often took the liberty of calling me Risa. Now, I like my name and I don't mind being called my uh, name when it's sort of um, a not professional, more casual environment, but it was often sort of, there was a loaded aspect to it and it was sort of a power play. I was working um, a triage shift uh, with a scribe and um, someone wanted to sort of go to the head of the line and get seen and evaluated faster. And it was sort of a elderly white male uh, whose wife was there as a patient. And he kept coming up to me and asking uh, what was happening, what was happening with his wife's care, why wasn't she being seen? And he kept uh, physically with his body coming closer and closer to me and sort of 
sort of, um, the scribe was getting uncomfortable. I kind of felt her discomfort and I helped her, I saw her looking at me, uh, I think to see how I was going to react and what I was going to do. So uh, this uh, family member was getting increasingly frustrated and wanting, wanted to be heard, wanted to sort of facilitate his wife's care. Now, meanwhile, I had checked the board, I had checked her vital signs and saw the reason for her coming to the emergency department. So I was not at all dismissing his concerns, but he, he, he stepped into me and he said, Risa, you know, what is happening with my wife and my wife's care? And it was sort of a whole never, another level of aggression and a whole nother level of discomfort. Um, number one, I, I felt very protective of the scribe. The scribe was a college student doing pre-medical studies who's watching everything and taking it all in. And so um, in one instance, I, um, you know, had this actual interaction. In another instance, um, I actually felt very protective that the scribe witnessed this and sort of saw what happens and what happens to someone like me. Wow. I can definitely relate. And I think part of performance is getting your mind ready to go do whatever that may be. If you're an actor, that's part of, you know, getting your makeup done and your costume. And for medicine, I have found that it helps me to get ready for my shift if I have my white coat and I have, you know, a few items in that white coat that I tend to use as my security blanket or an item that I think is really important and is sometimes hard to find. So, for instance, a lot of us walk around with a scalpel for that really rare moment that you might have to do a cricothyroidomy. And I think what we had talked about before is COVID has kind of stripped us of a symbol that helped communicate that we were the physician. And I think it also has a mental impact on us. And yes, yeah, some of this is how we're thinking in our head, and then some of it's the external response to that. So what I've gone and done, and it doesn't replace the white coat, but I just ordered more scrub caps that say physician on it because then it's right on my head when I'm talking to somebody. And, and we know that sometimes even with something as blatant as that, I'm still not going to be addressed properly. But at least I feel better and I feel like I'm making an effort to make it clear that I am the leader on the team. I'd like to say that, you know, you asked me about performance and I shared the story. To close the circle for the audience members and my thought in sharing that story, it's that all the time I was spending speaking with this family member, managing his body language and his sort of verbal aggression, that was time taken away from patient care. That was time taken away from uh, me focusing and making sure I was placing correct orders, making sure I was moving the department because I was sort of the portal of entry as, as the triage person with the scribe. And also, again, managing my reaction and, and sort of um, assuring safety of the scribe. So all those aspects were happening because of what he said and because of what he did, how he behaved. So 
uh, in terms of performance, like you could argue, recent was fine. You, it just get it, but no, it's sort of perhaps it it slowed down on the number of patients per hour I was seeing. Perhaps you know my mind got distracted, so I placed an error in order, or I neglected to uh, order the chest X-ray on the patient that was coming in to Kipnik hypoxic and febrile. So. Um, you know, I wanted to paint the how that's related to performance when we're managing these interactions and these statements on shift. And I think that's so important for all of us to think about because aside from just thinking about how to care for patients in an emergency department, extremely complex environment with a lot of variables that if we're not paying attention to all of that, it's very easy for a mistake to happen. We have this extra noise. So how do we turn that noise down or how do we acknowledge that that noise exists but move forward and be productive and be able to do our jobs to the fullest ability despite the bias that we're experiencing? It's another great question. And I think it's a bit individual. And also we know that there are techniques that we can employ that generally work for many people. So I definitely think that the more I take care of myself, the better equipped I am to take care of patients. So what does that look like and what does that mean? And you know, no, none of this is easy. It does mean sleep. Uh, it does mean eating healthy foods. And I'm one of those that enjoys bringing food rather than buying food to shift uh, because then I know it's healthy, then I know it's handmade. Um, it does mean when I'm not working shifts, taking care of me means some sort of regular exercise, um, some sort of uh, reading that's not medical reading and, and doing other things that um, lighten me and bring uh, a sense of clarity of my mind. It could mean uh, yoga. And, you know, some of this is like, you know, avoiding burnout one-on-one, -on -one, but none of this stuff do I do for that reason. I just do that for regular maintenance and ritualistic health. I like the way that sounds, ritualistic health. Um, when it happens real time in the department, I'll be honest, I'm almost always caught off guard. Uh, even though I'm like, Risa, why, why do you get caught off guard? You, you've been doing this for a while now. You know this stuff happens. But I think it's because it's exactly because of that. We are focused. And so when someone kind of, um, you know, uh, makes you lose your footing while you're just working hard and focusing on the patient and making sure that the sick uh, are getting addressed sooner than the less sick. I mean, it just, it, it kind of, yeah, knocks you off your feet a little bit. So I do think um, that, you know, if you're sort of coming with strength and endurance, then you'll sort of be able to navigate um, more quickly and re respond more quickly. Um, I do um, choose, like you choose when you speak up, you choose what to let go and you choose what you decide is egregious. Now there's certain like you know, policies about egregious behavior and egregious um, verbal interactions. But some of it is also personal, what some people can let go and what other people cannot let go. Um, that also can, can depend on whether or not you've eaten and it can depend on whether or not you're rested. So I will stay at this age and stage of practice clinically. Uh, I'm more willing to speak up and sort of redirect and reframe the relationship with a patient. And, I, you know, in this case, I'm mostly talking about the doctor-patient relationship and what happens in the emergency department. I definitely get people are scared. People are in pain. People are uncomfortable, like all those things. And so I, um, 
I really, really have to feel that something has crossed a line or needs to be addressed because it's affecting my ability to deliver good patient care. Um, and I think over time, I've gotten to phrases that I'll call Risa phrases that just feel natural, feel like they're consistent with my personality and um, are respectful and yet are firm and almost always the person gets the message. And it's amazing how almost always when you uh, call a person out, not to publicly embarrass, but to, again, uh, get a better uh, relationship going for that patient care encounter, I have found that when I call it out, always it's very clear the patient knows that they've crossed a line or they've, they've been disrespectful or they've been um, done something inappropriate. And they basically, like I see them sort of literally with their physical frame, straighten up and behave. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Um, but it's taken years to curate a sense of a, a collection of good phrases and a collection of interactions that are effective. Now, just in, in terms of like who I am, but also in terms of my personality, in terms of not making them angry and not turning them off and making them, you know, just start being a better patient so that I can be a better physician. I love that. I want to hear a Risa phrase. Can you give me an example? <laughs> um, well, this is one that I actually uh, developed as an early fa faculty member. And sometimes you'll have um, an elderly patient who is really carrying on in a way that you would not expect and really like just um, sort of, you know, whining and or complaining and or, again, not necessarily reacting in a way that you'd expect an adult to react. I'm, I'm not at all insensitive to pain, to, to fear, to insecurity, to all that stuff, but it's really just over the top and it's actually preventing me from delivering care and making sure that they're truly safe and stable. So I will say, um, this is an example if it's a, someone named Mr. Smith. Um, Mr. Smith, how old are you? And he'll say, I'm 65. I'm like, I, I need you to act like you're 65. And all of a sudden, they're just like, oh. And it sort of, sh I don't know, like um, shakes them out of sort of that they've maybe regressed a bit to childhood uh, and to sort of having that reaction of what it was like to go to the pediatrician and they have to get a shot. There's a couple things that I think are so awesome that you just brought to the front. One, as a woman or as a minority working in the emergency department, your day is going to be harder. That's the truth. You're going to run into more of these interactions that are vexing at best. So if you don't come to your shift rested, well fed, and have a plan on how you're going to take care of yourself throughout the day, you're going to lose your cool. And I've definitely found this personally, that the first half of my shift, I can handle almost anything with poise and grace. But by the end of the shift, some of these things will irritate me to a level that I may say something in a way that's not therapeutic. The second thing I really heard from all this is you're establishing some boundaries. And I think for a lot of us in healthcare, especially women in healthcare, we have been conditioned that we can't ever say no to anything, that the patient is always right, that they can treat us however they want, even though that behavior would never be acceptable 
in any other public place, you know, at McDonald's or fast food restaurant, but we're supposed to take it. And we're, as women, really supposed to exude this constant empathy, constant, no matter what is said or done to us. And then that also, I think, extends into the professional sphere with the expectations to be a mother figure for our colleagues. So I think that's the key word that I've been working on the last year is boundaries. And it's okay for me to say in a respectful way, it's not okay to shout or lose your cool, but you can communicate boundaries. Thank you for highlighting that. I think you really, you really got it. Yeah. I work hard to maintain those boundaries of professionalism. And really, I just go back to, it's about patient care. It's about me being able to focus and be on my game so that I can do the best for the patient. So I want to take another example of something that happens really frequently and an issue that a lot of my female residents ask me about. And not everyone that listens to the podcast is in medicine. So I just want to set up what we're going to be talking about here. So we're going to be talking about when a code happens in the emergency department. And this is when a patient has no pulse and is not breathing. And it's a very time sensitive issue. And a lot of things need to happen very quickly. And the expectation is that there's a team leader and in an emergency department, that's going to be a physician. And what happens frequently, and this has been studied and there's papers that support it, is when women are leading these codes, they are often held to a double standard and they're trying to walk this tightrope of being an authority figure. But if they're too authoritative, then they get feedback that they were bossy and feedback that their male colleagues don't receive. How do you coach your female residents? I'd say it's important for everybody to know that this is real. And again, there's data and there's literature on it. And, you know, it's important for uh, our male, our female, our non-binary colleagues to know that this is real. So it's not just for us to solve and us to help, but for everybody. If we're in teaching institutions and we have trainees, this is something all of us can help. So I think one of the biggest endorsements for any resident, and for the sake of discussion, we'll talk about female residents, is to actually say, listen, you're going to lead this. And so, in other words, you're giving them an endorsement, and uh, the follow-up is, you're going to lead this, and I'll lead it with you, or I'll be here with you. As a resident, that has to be so empowering. How does that actually look and sound like for you on shift? Either having that resident announce that they are team leader and or announcing Sayantani is the team leader. So I think the other thing is where we stand. You know, there's the classic like sitting at the table, getting a seat at the table. You see the same thing in codes. The person that's leading is somehow to the side or somehow off in a corner. So I'll say, Sayantani, you need to stand at the front. So standing at the front. The other thing that I found effective, I'm five foot two, uh, standing on a stool or even standing on a chair. And I actually first saw this when I was in residency and I was running to a code on the floor that the internal medicine residents were running. The person running stood on a chair. And so it was the most visible, head of the bed, uh, clear who's in charge 
experience I had. And from then on, I really started buying into this concept of kind of the tallest person. And you create that tallness by standing on a stool or standing on a chair, as long as that chair doesn't have wheels and is stable. And that's very powerful because there's something about no speaking, that visual, you know who's in charge. So I will encourage that. One of the things that you describe is this challenge that we do have as women. And it's this concept of agentic traits versus communal traits. So what are those? Agentic is uh, most commonly associated with men. This is independence. This is ambition. This is decisiveness. This is uh, all those uh, aspects that get men to leadership positions. This is also aggression. We as women may look at those traits and say, huh, if I want to be a leader, I need to adopt those traits. Um, Classically, the traits uh, associated with women are uh, communal, um, empathetic, sympathetic, supportive. And so when we start adopting or taking on some of these agentic traits, to your point, they may not be received well. And rather than Uh, being seen as the one who is a leader, who's in charge, who's competent. We're seen as someone who's bossy, um, who's um, a know-it-all, kind of negative connotations. And that's real. And there's some great business school case studies that talk about this in terms of uh, a classroom being divided up into two. They're given a profile of a potential boss um, and the same profile Uh, has a male name attached to it and uh, as the profile attached to a female name. And what they found in the business school class case uh, discussion was uh, overall, the class said that they really liked the male and they would want him to be their boss. And regarding the same case description, but the female, they said, you know, she sounds competent, but I wouldn't want to work for her. She sounds bossy. So it's a bit of a no-win situation. Back to your specific question about running a code. I think there's, again, a few simple things of introduction, designation, um, physical placement, and standing. Um, and then it comes to, to, to running the code. And, you know, styles are different. I 155,000% believe in br- taking in the input of other people in the room. I value the respiratory therapist. I value the nurse. I value the tech. I value everybody that's in there because we've all done – ACLS. We've all run codes. And um, I want to continue to have that open input. And it doesn't mean that I don't know my H's and my T's. It just means I value that input. And I'm aware that, you know, there are a lot of things happening simultaneously. So um, more than one voice and more than one brain is better. So um, quieting the internal voice, quieting the imposter syndrome, wondering how you're being perceived. I do think there's an element that most of us learn and most of us get to where you kind of put it aside in the moment because you know you're focusing on the patient care, you need to do this. And then I think the closure that many of us need that is the part that doesn't happen often, although we're taught now that we're supposed to, is the debrief. And I have found so much value in debriefs. In fact, I've taken some training on debriefing. I am by no means... Um, expert. I'll call myself an advanced beginner in terms of debriefing. And I make myself do it because I know the more I do it, the better I'll get at it. Um, And I've talked to friends that are simulationists and, you know, some expert debriefers. And I sort of have this routine that I do when I'm debriefing. And what I found is staff are very appreciative. Um, It makes everybody feel better. It brings some sort of closure, no matter what the outcome of the code. Um, It gives some sort of closure. And then people will reveal what 
made them uncomfortable, what made them uncomfortable, what they thought went well, what they didn't think went well. And sometimes it's actually literally just lack of comprehension of pathophysiology, or sometimes someone heard EMS said something and that's why an action was taken, but everybody else in the room didn't hear that. And all of a sudden something made sense. So it allows clarity. It allows some, um, I think, um, clearance mentally and emotionally. And I think it allows also um, you to speak to your knowledge and speak to your competence when otherwise you may not have known that people are questioning it. Wow, that is such a mega pearl. And as a simulationist, I couldn't agree more. In my last position, I was the first and only female emergency physician to be stationed at Navy Trauma Training Center at LA County, USC. Wow. And needless to say, it had been a very male-dominated position, and it was working in the resuscitation pod at LA County, which is an intense place to work. And then I had Navy people with me frequently. And I found debriefing to be my secret power. And it's all the things you just said. So I was new there. I had to learn how to work with the LA County nursing and and techs, which are phenomenal and amazing people. And it's all the things you just said. We would have an intense experience. Sometimes I would do something different than what they were used to. For instance, I often start a vasopressor in the background if I think it's a pseudo-PEA, which is getting very technical for our non-medical audience, but it's a little bit different than the algorithm. Um, And it would be very easy for someone to leave that situation saying, oh, Dr. Austin didn't really know what she was doing. That was pretty weird. But because we debriefed it and I would show them why I thought we were in a pseudo-PEA situation and why I thought that was the best course of action, it completely reframed a narrative, a story that they had developed. And then we all left the room with a better understanding. And frequently I learned something from what they told me. So it ended up strengthening our mutual respect and understanding of each other. And I think debriefing sometimes really involves a lot of the skills that women are naturally better at. Uh, Listening, that communal setting. And this is an example of how we can be authentic to ourselves. And I end up feeling better about the job I did when I have that debrief and we have this moment of shared reflection about a very intense experience. And then this idea that maybe there's one thing that came out of this that made me or somebody else on a team a little bit better and we can take care of a patient better next time. So one of the things I noticed over the course of my career is emergency medicine is a very expedient and results-driven specialty. And at any given time, you are forced to make a lot of decisions with not a lot of information, and you can only spend so much time on something on a shift. So when something happens, either a micro or a macro aggression, I've developed kind of this algorithm in my head of, all right, how much is this issue impacting patient care? Because patient care is the number one thing that we need to be focused on. How much is this affecting me personally personally? 
um, my team and the hospital at large. And then I make a decision about whether I need to say something right now or is this something that cannot be addressed in this moment but needs to be addressed on a larger level. And I'm wondering if you have something similar or how you've navigated this over time. Because if we stopped every time there was a microaggression in the emergency department, I don't think we would finish a shift. I would not say that I have an algorithm. However, as I've shared already, things have changed for me a bit over time. I do think it's important to use your voice. And I think it's important to use your voice. However, it's not easy to use your voice professionally and respectfully and effectively such that you can get the outcome you desire, although you get better at it. So I would say one change I've seen over time uh, is the speaking up real time as opposed to letting it fester and holding on to it. Because I think if we hold on and just swallow, 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 it eats us and it's not good for us. And so uh, it is choosing battles. And also I have found that the more I speak up and call something out real time, first of all, it's not just patients and, and doctors. Our teammates are watching. Nurses are watching what we do, how we react. Trainees are watching what we do and how we react, what we say, what we don't say. And I would say the more, and this is for everybody, the more you listen to your gut, the more you are navigated by right and wrong and, and using your voice to say something effectively. Again, that's difficult. However, saying something the better off it is because it's a better, this goes back to the Times Up Healthcare of a safe, dignified, and equitable work environment. When I was uh, working in New York City, um, one of the EKG techs came over, me, came over to me and told me that she had been called the N-word by a patient when she was doing his EKG. And I, I was enraged. Um, I sped walk over to him. And I just basically, in so many words, said to him um, that this uh, was not a place for his uh, language and that uh, I would not tolerate that in my emergency department. And if there was any um, suggestion of this problem again, he would be asked to leave. And he looked, again, same thing. I talked about that body language. He literally, like, there was this straightening up and he looked at me and he shook his head nodding acknowledgingly. He knew what he did. He thought he was going to get away with it because she was the EKG tech. And um, I mean, I, I was not at all pleased that that occurred. And also, I was very pleased that she came to me and told me about it. And again, my, my immediate reaction was to, to address it real time. I don't know that I would have done that. You talked about, you know, when to speak up, um, how to speak up. You know, I don't know. Like, it's, it's hard to know what, what I would have done in training, what I would have done uh, when I was an early faculty member. But certainly what I see now when I, you know, stand outside myself and look at, you know, how I react, it's trying to be present and react real time when it's something to be reacted to. And I think something like that needs to be addressed real time. Thank you. I love that point so much. And what it comes back to is what we've talked about earlier in the episode, 
this concept of boundaries. And I want to spend a little bit more time on it because I really think this is the take-home point for our listeners. On this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about how to optimize your performance under these extreme emergent situations that really sometimes are only a few minutes long. But this is a marathon to succeed in these high-pressure fields like emergency medicine, our careers last decades, hopefully. And in order for us to thrive, we have to feel that we work in teams in which we are valued and respected. And there is a growing amount of literature that shows these micro and macro aggressions are not small things and that they contribute significantly to our burnout. I'm really tired of losing good friends and colleagues in this field, and we must do everything in our power to make our workplaces more fair and equitable. I'd like to share one more story. I mean, most of my examples have been physician-patient, and I have to acknowledge that there's a power dynamic, you know, um, when you're the physician and the patient. And what I want to share is uh, another story of an interaction I had with a colleague from another service we had um, called as consultant. So I was working in the emergency department. It was busy. Uh, There was a patient with a history of polysubstance use uh, and a psychiatric history. And our consultation was to psychiatry regarding his stability uh, and safety. And it was like every shift. It was busy. There were people everywhere. There were beds everywhere. And I saw my psych psychiatry attending colleague come with his team and he did a circle around the department. He walked right by this patient's room and then he came up to me. I was at a physician workstation um, with some residents and almost in a peacocking way, um, sort of he, he brazenly said, oh, I know that patient. He's a dirt bag. You can discharge him home. And again, I'm very sensitive and perceptive regarding body language. Like I would say of the six people standing in a circle waiting to hear his evaluation of this patient, like all of us kind of just shrunk an inch. We were just like, couldn't believe he said it. Couldn't believe, I mean, this is a consultant attending physician. And I had to decide what to do in that moment. Like, do you let it go? Do you confront? Do you confront publicly? Like, what do you do? And this is the part that I say gets better with time. Um, I just read a book called um, How to Win Friends and edu- uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, which is an old, old book. It's very salesperson-y. And I had been recommended it. I read it. And the one thing I got from this that I carry with me is there's never a need to publicly embarrass someone. So I said to him, um, can I talk to you for a minute? And he said, sure. So we walked to the trauma room because no one was in the trauma room. And I could tell he knew. This goes back to patients know, colleagues know. People know when they've done something out of bounds. And his head was sort of um, flexed and down because I think he knew what was coming. And I basically said to him, listen, completely inappropriate. You are modeling behavior. Like you have trainees um, and I basically told him that I would not tolerate the, that kind of language and that kind of treatment of patients or speaking about patients in front of me, in front of training, like all the above. And I, 
I don't bring this story up to say, Risa, Risa, oh, Risa, Risa. No, I bring this story up to say that we're going to have these interactions. They're going to happen. And, you know, you asked about when do you speak up? What do you kind of um, put in the file and, and deal with later? I think the more I've been doing this, the more I've been working in the clinical environment, uh, the more I try to respond real time because it happens real time. You can correct the behavior real time. And that correction can be longer lasting than writing an email about it a week later. Right. And I think the most important thing is, let's face it, you know, most people, let's say you did send an email to your department head and it gets funneled to a professional committee or whatever. There is a time and a place for that. And I'm not minimizing that, but most people are going to be retained by their employer. And I find by addressing this, these issues real time, there's the potential to preserve a relationship. There's a potential to bring everyone back into the fold, bring it back to purpose that this is a patient, even though this person is exhibiting some behaviors that are very difficult for us to navigate and work through. But let's find a way to work together to you know, do what's right for this patient. Spot on. And after that, my relationship with that psychiatry attending completely improved. The dialogue, the respectful conversation and discussion uh, for patient-centered care completely got better. And uh, I was very glad. Uh, but I will tell you, it wasn't easy. It had taken years for me to figure out my words for when to call someone out real time, privately, effective words. I mean, he was clearly like 10, 15 years my senior in terms of age. And so I don't, I don't want to minimize how difficult it is and how it takes time to find words that feel uh, consistent with who you are as a person and feel consistent with your personality. And I think for our medical students and residents and other junior people listening, um, you know, Risa and I are at different phases of our career. Um, I'm six years out from residency. I don't know how many years you're out, but we, we do need to acknowledge that at this point in both of our professional careers, we have attained some status and power, and we actually do have the ability to have quite a bit of influence at work. Now, we both deal with persistent bias and discrimination but we also have power. And what I am now spending a long time, uh, much of my time on, is how do I empower and protect my residents and medical students? Because it is not realistic in our current medical system to expect them to do that. That's not an interaction that they are really empowered to do. Maybe by the time I finish my career, they're, they're, they will be, but I have to be realistic to our listeners that if you're in a, a place of power, stature, use it. Use it for good. Use your voice. Well, as we wrap up the podcast, there's a few questions we like to ask all of our guests. So my first question is, what book or books would you recommend our audience read to better educate themselves on the topics we discussed today? So I could definitely name a slew of books, and I do like reading uh, about these topics as well as on leadership, uh, as well as the medical literature on these topics. So I don't want to name too many, but I will pick one article that's worth a download, that's worth a read, and then uh, one newsletter 
blog that I think would just be helpful to the health of everybody. So the specific article that I think everybody should Google and download, it's a free PDF. It's the 2018 NASM report, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And this 2018 report uh, is on sexual harassment in the workplace. And so if you're a naysayer, if you're not a believer, um, it will provide you with the numbers uh, it will convince you that really nothing has changed in 25 years. And unfortunately, uh, amongst the STEM fields, medicine is the worst. It is the most egregious regarding sexual harassment. Um, and then that becomes a piece that you refer to and a piece you can quote in terms of numbers and statistics. The blog newsletter that I think everybody should add to their Twitter uh, follow as well as to getting the the weekly uh, inbox mailing is called brain pickings. Uh, there's this uh, amazing creator host called uh, her name is Maria Popova, and she sends uh, beautiful poetry, uh, beautiful art pieces, beautiful reviews of books, uh, and beautiful. Um, biographical exposés on literary figures, thinkers, uh, inventors, all kinds of people that we've probably not thought about or read since high school or college. Um, and it is amazing to see how her selections, which are small, we're not talking uh, New Yorker size length readings, we're talking um, two to five minute reads. Um, they bring you back to what's important in terms of leadership, in terms of human nature, uh, in terms of love, in terms of the power of poetry. And that sort of is sort of a good health balance uh, given the challenges of 2020. Awesome. We will definitely put those in the show notes. Thank you so much. My last question and how we end every episode is we like to ask our guests to give our listeners a challenge, something you would like our listeners to work on to improve their performance. My challenge is food-based. I think people should see what happens if they give up sugar. Uh, I would like to see what the listeners would do if they consider going plant-based for a month. See if they feel different. See if their energy levels change see if they sleep better, see if they perform better. Awesome. I love that recommendation. And it links back to an interview I did on episode 26 with Dr. Lisa Deutsch. We spent time exploring how nutrition impacts performance. And I think we've really come back full circle that even a topic involving bias in the workplace, we talked about how having proper nutrition and fuel in the tank makes us more prepared to deal with these difficult situations. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Risa Lewis, for this phenomenal interview. I have learned so much about this topic from Dr. Lewis, and I'm really excited to try out some of the strategies that she recommended today. There's a lot of work to do on this topic and today was the start of a conversation and certainly not the end. So I look forward to exploring this topic more and also hearing from all of you. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. 
Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.